Welcome back to Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. This is part three of hearing from Mary Jane Baker, Lisa Swift, Lisa Firth, all in one person, and Sue Clark. We were talking about the Women's Institute, Steve. Yeah, and I, f- I found a lovely thing. It was Just before the break, we were talking about how you get loads of excess material and you end up having to recycle it. Sometimes I can recycle it. Sometimes I just turn it into a short story because it's a standalone and it works really well. But I, one I really want to do something with is I discovered recently that in Highgate in North London, there is a goth women's institute group. Researching the one that I wrote. Oh, right. Amazing. They sit around and make basques and corsets and, and they only ever make black currant jam. It's just too good. It's too good a gag not to use, isn't it? Speaking of short stories, Sue, your book grew from a short story, didn't it? It did, yes. I wrote the story for um, a competition. The topic of the competition was fame. And so I wrote what turned out to be, I suppose, the first couple of chapters of the book. And uh, I got shortlisted and I was getting very excited about it. I was I had a full-time job at the time and I promised myself if I won the competition, I would quit my job and that would be it. And I'd become a famous novelist. I got a phone call which got me very excited, from the chap who was organising the competition, a man called Andrew Crofts. He's actually written 80 books, that's eight zero books, because he's a ghostwriter. So he's, he's uh, you know, very prolific, and uh, he also writes novels. Anyway, he said, uh, uh, I'm phoning up to tell you, you haven't won, you come second. But he said, you know, I like, I like the story, why don't you develop it and see see what you can do with it, see if you can make it into a novel. So I thought, right, well, he must know what he's talking about. He's got 80 books published. That's when I um, worked on it. And uh, I sent Andrew Cross the uh, review copy a couple of weeks ago, and he sent me back a lovely quote and said he thought it was both funny and tragic, which I was really pleased with that because I think that's like a sweet spot that it's really hard to hit. And if you can if you do that some of the time, then I think you're not too far off the mark. You know, there's that saying, it's not enough that you succeed, but that your friends fail and then die miserably. Thinking yeah. back to the your your thoughts on the competition that you came second right, yeah. in. When we've spoken to crime writers on We'd Like a Word, it all seems really collegiate and supportive. Lisa, what's it like in the romantic novelist arena? Is it really sharp elbow or all lovely? There's a really gag, I think, that crime writers like to like to throw at romance writers that, you know, the, the crime writing community is all lovely and supportive and if the romance writing community will stab you in the back, that's, that's not certainly not been my experience. I don't think that's true at all, really. The Romantic Novelist Association is a brilliant organisation that I'm a member of, that I'm very proud to be a member of, and they offer this new writers scheme. And a lot of people have gone on to go through the new writers scheme, go on to be published authors, and in some cases very successful published authors. And they also offer bursaries for membership and for events for people in underrepresented groups in romance. There's one for LGBT romance writers. There's at least one for people from underprivileged backgrounds. It's great. They have, we have an annual conference, which is brilliant. It's very boozy and people have kitchen parties and dinner and And obviously we have the Renner Awards, which I was looking at and in romantic comedy of the year this year. But yeah, it's a great organisation. Steve and I were talking about this earlier, that there is this myth that nearly all the Mills and Boone authors are actually blokes. Historically, there have been some men who wrote Mills and Boone. I don't think there are any at the moment. Roger Sanderson was a very well-known writer of medical Mills and Boones. He wrote as Jill Sanderson, which was his wife's name. I think they wrote in partnership together, uh, and when she passed away, he continued writing under, under their shared pen name. But no, the vast majority of women think all at the moment are women. And what are you all reading at the moment? 
not reading for pleasure at the moment. I'm largely, re well, I'm sort of combining research and reading for pleasure. So I'm writing a historical novel at the moment, a saga set in World War Two in the North farming community in Humboldt. So I'm reading a lot of James Herriot's need information about sheep farming in the 1940s. You're like a method actor writer because you've been you've been cooking awful meals from the World War Two as well, haven't you? Because you've been putting them up on social media. I've got a World War Two cookbook and I've been working my way through it. It's like they're amazingly potato pie, <laughs> horrible brown meals. But actually, if you like stocky food, which I do, it's it's really nice. What about um, you, Sue? I'm currently reading. I never know how to say her name. Nina Stib, is it? Yeah, yeah. Because of the title, Reasons to be Cheerful, I thought this is exactly what I want. But uh, yeah, I got to, uh, um, there's, there's lots of laughs in that, little laughs along the way, but I got to chapter two and the, she's got this wonderful description of, um, I think it's her stepfather, who wears his trousers the continental style, pulled up under his armpits with everything down one trouser leg. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely snorted. It was great. This links us back to something we were saying earlier and the fact that Nina Stibb was actually the last winner of the Woodhouse Prize. You started mentioning, but we went off down a different path, the fact that there is now a women's prize for comic fiction, isn't there? Which Helen Lederer got going? Well, the Woodhouse Award has never or very rarely been won by a woman. I think Helen Fielding might have won it. And then they had an all-female shortlist the year after that, so I think they, they must have responded to that. And... That's exactly why this was started. It's um, Quip, Comedy Women in Print. It's just had its second year... They have Marianne Keyes. I think they're currently reading the entries. Marianne Keyes is the, is the lead judge, so it's, it's getting a lot of publicity, but it was exactly for that reason, because very little comedy and very little comedy books by women. It's coming on very nicely, I think, so next year I'll, I might give it a go. And also nice to see something we talked about way back in the Graham Norton episode. I think it was our second episode of We'd Like a Word. We talked about whether celebrities can write novels. Because we were saying that it would actually help people like us a lot if celebrities wrote good comic novels, which were incredibly popular, because it would open up the market. But unfortunately, most comedians... I mean, there was a time when comedians did write novels. Eric Sykes wrote novels. Eric Morecambe wrote novels. Les Dawson wrote novels. But we don't have many now. They just tend to do. Now, whether it's because they can't write a novel or whether it's because their publishers say, no, no, we don't want any of that. We just want stuff that relates to your live act. Most comedians now, the books they get, they instantly get book deals, but none of them are novels. I'm kind of hoping... Richard Osman's novel this autumn will open things up a bit because it's a comedy, it's a novel, it's a murder mystery and Richard's written it himself and he's a very funny man so I'm kind of hoping that opens it up a little bit. But if it needs that kind of lead, great, but we do need something because the comedy novels just aren't getting out there at the moment. Graham Norton's are, are quite literary, aren't they? They're very good. Yeah, he's, he's excellent, yeah. Uh, I don't know why that surprises me because he's, you know, he's a very... Clever, witty man, isn't he? A keeper was his his yeah, second one. A keeper. I, I know how hard it is to get published and and so on. So I wouldn't ever slag off published writers, but um, not all the celebrity writers should be writing novels. You kind of think maybe it's um, on the list. You know, you've done this, you've done that, you've done the tour, you've done the sitcom, you've done the the, the theatre things, yeah. and write a novel as if as if they're all the same thing. Clearly not. Well, I'll tell you what I am reading at the minute. The Last Crossing by Brian McGilloway. Not comedic, but kind of an Irish one. And then this one, which I'm most of the way through. The House of 100 Clocks 
And so at half six or a quarter past six on weekday evenings, I'm reading this over Zoom to nieces and nephews. So if anyone is having to do remote bedtime stories, I recommend The House of 100 Clocks by A.M. Howell. And there's a talking a talking parrot in it, and it's set in 1905. And people aged between, I suppose, four up to about ten seem to be enjoying it and sitting quietly for half an hour, three or four chapters. So there you go. Slightly off topic, but if you're reading aloud and don't mind doing voices, including that of a parrot, this could be for you. <laughs> I'm still at, the, still at the level of the Gruffalo with my uh, grandchild, uh, but that's good. I was saying to Lisa earlier, I, th- I think part of the reason that audiobooks are having such a huge impact at the moment, I mean, they are the growth industry in publishing, is audiobooks. I think it's because deep down as a species, we like, we're storytellers and we like hearing stories. We like having people read us stories. I don't think it's about being lazy and not picking up a book. I think it's because we like being told stories. In the days when not everyone could read, there was the way stories were passed on, wasn't it? I mean, only recently that we've all resorted to the, the printed word or the screen. I have a problem in that I, I can't stay awake when I listen to an audio <laughs> Well, not with my books, anyway. So nobody's yeah. ever got to the end of the Gruffalo, then, with you? <laughs> no, no. In the older days, when we had actual books and actual grandchildren around, then uh, then I would read the actual book. Mm. But uh, we're um, FaceTiming and whatever now. Actually, I uh, want to ask you both about bookshops but before that I just want to mention one other book because it's not somebody we've had in the program but it's a a writer called Christopher West and the reason I'm mentioning it two reasons one he's just contracted coronavirus so he's not having a happy time at the moment and he lives near the Tower of London and his more recent book is about the Tower of London so it's kind of a history book And it's called Poppies, Pomp and People, A Year in the Life of the Tower of London. And he had unprecedented access to events that the Queen was doing and the Constable of the Tower and all that sort of thing. I thought, because VE Day is coming up, people are feeling patriotic and about British heritage things. They might fancy Christopher West's book, Poppies, Pomp and People, A Year in the Life of the Tower of London, which might cheer him up seeing as he's suffering from horrible virus. But moving on from that, I'm on to bookshops. Get well soon, soon, Chris. Christopher. Now, Paul, yes, we've got to do a bit of housekeeping. Now, what was the question from last week? (laughs) Actually, I know the question from last week, and I know the answer for it, which is unusual for me. We had Taylor Brown, the author of Pride of Eden and various other good books on, and he joined us all the way from Savannah, Georgia, at the suggestion of listener Jason Grubbs, and that was all great. And... In his book, Pride of Eden, there are exotic beasts kind of on the loose and in captivity in Georgia and Florida. And he asked, in which state of the United States of America has more lions, I think it was? Tigers. Was it more tigers? Okay, more tigers. Anyway, more big cats than there are in the wild. And I knew the answer because I'd read the book and it's mentioned in the book, as did some of our listeners. And the answer is, Steve? Texas, I think. Yay, well done. I was hoping you'd get it wrong. Oh, well, that's a shame. (laughs) I think it's tigers, because tigers are actually endangered and there's not many in the wild. There's still quite a lot of lions, but there's a lot more... The answer is Texas. Yeah, a lot more tigers in captivity. Well, anyway, the answer is Texas. And I suppose we should say, 
yes, we've got to get a question from Lisa. I thought I'd ask the question, which is actually the tiebreaker. In, in my book, the question of us, um, the heroine is the captain of the pub quiz team. So they spend the whole book trying to win the interpub quiz league. And it all comes down to a tiebreaker. And the tiebreaker is, what was the name of the fifth Marx brother who never appeared in any of their feature films? The stage name. Probably have a bonus point for the real name as well. Okay, so that's the fifth Marx brother who never appeared in the films. What was the stage name and real name of the fifth Shire Marx brother? Dave. Dave Marx. (laughs) No. Gary. Gary. Colin. Colin Marx. We're coming up towards the end, but I want to get here about your favourite bookshops before we finish. Lisa, what about you? My favourite new uh, independent bookshop, the Book Corner in Halifax in the Peaceful Yard there. Absolutely gorgeous building, which is a relic of the textile industry in this area. It's a wonderful bookshop. White Rose Books in Thirst is the home of James Herriot. It's run by a lady called Sue Lake, who's lovely and very supportive to authors. So you have a lot of signings there. And the last one is a second-hand bookshop. I don't actually know the name of in Southport, but it's a great little shop. It's just down a little alleyway, and it sells crystals and books and <laughs> lots of random things. I think I've been there. <laughs> I had to do a gig near Southport and I, and I wanted to go and have a look at the, the amazing Lawnmower Museum, which I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I swear, yeah, I think I found that shop because I think I've got some Bulldog Drummonds there. Well, I have to big up the bookshop in Abingdon, the town where I live, uh, called Mostly Books. Sarah Dennis is the owner. She's got a background in finance, so she's got a, got a good business head on her, but she's also a complete bookaholic. They get really good speakers. They've had um, Sebastian Folks. They've had uh, Ruby Wax. They've had the real Gruffalo there. They've got an online service now. They've got an online um, book club while uh, the crisis is going on. But also, I ordered a book from them. I ordered some books from them yesterday, and they were delivered, hand-delivered by a um, lovely man on a bike in his full Lycra gear this afternoon. Just that sounds I... like the basis of a romantic comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa is stealing my idea. Yeah. It's better than having it delivered by the real Gruffalo. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sue, when is your book Note to Boy out? It's on the 9th of July, it's publication date. And Lisa, Um, your next one? My next one's the Mary Jane Baker one. Um, The Never Have I Ever Club is out on the 18th of June. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Lisa Firth. Lisa Swift, Mary Jane Baker, for joining us. All in the one screen, it's miraculous. And Sue Clark, and good luck with both your books uh, that are out, coming out around now, have just come out, depending on when people are listening to this. You have been listening to Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. We'll see you soon. Bye!